0: I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this uh, great time to learn our faith together and to uh, be inspired by one of the great teachers of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. On today's broadcast, uh, Bishop Sheen will be talking about the need to think and reason. And uh, we all need to think and reason more. Uh, This world is very challenging, and some of the problems are complex. But with the Holy Spirit and uh, God's help, uh, we will be given that grace to think and reason. And so Bishop Sheen will give us a few lessons today. And then we are going to continue our catechism lessons. Uh, We're on lesson number 44 of a 50-part series. And uh, today's lesson is entitled Death and Judgment. And uh, so uh, looking forward to that uh, lesson. And so let us begin in prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy this reflection from Uh, Fulton Sheen's television series, Life is Worth Living, from the 1950s, and this uh, broadcast was entitled, The Need to Think and Reason. Please enjoy.
1: Friends, uh, this week we received a letter from a father who had received a report from school about his son. The father apparently was a doctor. The boy had good notes in everything except penmanship. The father said to him, you must learn to write, if you don't, you will grow up to be a doctor like me. And the little boy said, or maybe like Bishop Sheen, he can't write either. (laughs) We are, I discover, starting a new fashion and style. We have received a picture of a little boy in Minneapolis, which you will now see. This little boy, you see, is dressed just exactly as I am, even down to the yarmulke. I think that possibly hop along, Cassidy, be better watch out for his loyals. These yarmulkes will be substituted for ten-gallon hats. And apropos of style, I heard of a man the other day who went in and bought a hat from Madame Nicole. And it was, of course, the very latest style. And he dashed out of the shop madly and down the avenue. And someone said to him, why all the hurry? He said, I want to hurry home. I'm afraid it'll get out of style. <laughs> which, is, which is an introduction for a style in ideas. It's all right to have style in clothes. But today there's a certain amount of snobbery about time. And people feel that any idea that is modern is necessarily the best. The assumption is that in as much you as know, there is progress in the world that is inevitable and necessary, then it follows that any idea which we have today is much better than the idea of last year or ten years ago. Now this snobbery of time as regards an idea is not necessarily justified. Time does not make us better, time could conceivably make us much worse. For example, a white fence does not get whiter with time, it gets blacker. And then too, very often what people call modern is nothing but an old error with a new label. Whenever you have an idea that you are absolutely sure is original, and no one ever thought of it before, Go back and see how the Greeks put it. They had it too. Then too, this idea that everything that is modern enough today is the very best is based upon the idea that if we move with the times, we are wise. It is well to remember that dead bodies float down It is only live-bodies that resist the current. And particularly, we find this snobbery of time in the present tendency to divide everyone into what is called a liberal or a reactionary. So that we all are asked whether we belong to the left or whether we belong to the right. Now it is not necessary really to belong to either one because these are extremes. Let me prove it to you. In everything that changes there must always be something that is changeless. For example, you meet someone whom you haven't seen in twenty years and you say, My, how you've changed! How fat you got! Well, now, it may be true that this person is a victim of circumference, but how would you know that? (laughs) How would you know there was a change unless there had been something changeless in the person? Or, for example, one woman meets another and she says, I like you much better as a blonde than as a brunette. (laughs) And then she invariably also adds, And also those fine black roots. (laughs) So there must always be change with the changeless. Now as you see, the liberal takes the change and the reactionary emphasizes the changeless. Here are some examples of it. A liberal may be described, or rather a reactionary may be described, as a man with two feet a pair of shoes, but he absolutely refuses to walk. A liberal has been very well described as one who has both feet firmly planted in midair. <laughs> a reactionary has a boy. The boy wears a green hat at the age of two. And the reactionary says, Johnny, you wear a green hat now, you'll wear it at 12, you'll wear it at 20, you'll wear it all your life. The liberal said, let's give Johnny a new head. (laughs) Not a new hat, a new head. (laughs) A reactionary is a flat tire on the wheels of progress. A liberal is the automobile without a steering gear. He doesn't know where he's going. But he's certainly on his way. (laughs) The liberal emphasizes the pendulum of the clock without the clock and the reactionary the clock without the pendulum. See, both are creations of time related to it. Now, there also is a law about liberals and reactionaries, and the law is this. Every liberal is a reactionary. He's in reaction to the last form of liberalism. That isn't too difficult to understand. For example, a woman buys a new gown. It's the dernier Cree, and, and it's even described as staring and shocking. She goes to a ball. There's another ball the following week. Would she wear that same gown? She would die first. <laughs> already in reaction to the last form of liberalism. Take, for example, our modern woman. What is the modern woman from the liberal point of view? Well, she's someone who drinks cocktails, smokes cigarettes, and wears red fingernails. As Dorothy Parker says, she looks as if she just gored an ox. <laughs> now, she is the liberal in womanhood, but she's in reaction to the last form of liberalism, which was the Victorian woman with a bustle and the high collar. And someone who kept in a notebook quotations from Lord Byron and loved the waltzes of Strauss. And that woman was in reaction to another form of liberalism. Which was the Puritan who thought that a waltz was a kind of an orgy. And it's true also in politics. The old liberal of the 19th century. The liberal that was made by Adam Smith and James Stuart Mill believe that there should be economic production without state control. The modern liberal is in reaction to the last form of liberalism, and the modern liberal believes there should be economic production with state control, even with a form of socialism. And thus, you see, they are always juggling ideas from one end to the other, and Everything is decided on the basis of time instead of on the basis of reason. And we decide arguments with slogans carrying the burden of those who are too lazy to think for themselves or emotions. People justify a position by saying, well, I feel it in here. What is needed really in our modern world that is so dedicated to time and as so forgotten reason and discussion and controversy and argument and intelligence, we need someone who will bring to the world, first of all, the use of reason. In other words, induce us once more to think. Secondly, our ideal will be one who in discussion and in presentation of thought will always give and know both sides of the question and not one side only. And thirdly, he will always argue from the other person's position or premise. These are some of the ideals of intelligence. To restore sanity to the world. And who can ever bring them back? I think I know someone who can. I'll tell you a bit about his life. When he was born, his father went out and told the neighbors, Well, the little calf has come. Then he went to school. He was rather a big fellow, big arms, big legs, neck, body. Very timid. The fellow students used to call him an ox. The dumb ox. And one day, his professor became angry at the students for calling this big boy a dumb ox. And his professor said, Someday the bellowings of that ox will be heard around the world. He used reason so very cleverly that naturally he was led to God. And his parents and relatives tried to deflect him a bit from that position. They were rather modern. They thought the way to do it was to interest him in sex. So they introduced a woman into his room one day when he was studying, and he reached over to the fireplace and he picked up a blazing poker and he chased her out of the room, and then he traced upon the door of his room a blazing cross, and then sat down and thought and how he thought. When was he born? 12: 24. His name, Thomas Aquinas. Though he lived to be about only 50, he wrote these 34 volumes. They're all in Latin. Some of them have been done into English. One of the greatest masterpieces of the human mind. I had to go through all of these when I was in the university in Louvain. A matter of fact, we had to read every line of them. took a whole year to do it too. My angel brought these books out, incidentally. He's very humble. he doesn't mind carrying books. Out. going to show you how he thought and how he reasoned. First of all I said he used reason. He said you cannot begin with faith. There must be a reason for faith. And before you accept anything there must be a motive for that belief. This was rather astounding to people who thought that you began religion, particularly supernatural religion, with faith without reason. Then he took up, for example, such a question as the existence of God. And he said, is the existence of God self-evident? And he said, no. It is not self-evident. You have to use your reason to prove it. And he began using his reason. And his first argument for the existence of God that he gave was the fact of evolution. He says there's evolution in the world. It was cosmic. He embraced everything, not only biological evolution, even mental evolution in the sense of the evolution of thought within the human mind itself. So he gave reasons for everything. And in addition to that, he always gave both sides of a position. How rare that is. Let me give you an example of the structure of this work. Here, for example, is his question. Does God exist? I'm going to bring it up here to the camera. Is this the camera that can take care of it? He asked if God exists. Now he begins always by giving the opposite position and honestly and fairly. And his first argument is, no, God does not exist. He said if God exists, he had to be perfect. If he's perfect, he's perfect goodness. If he's perfect goodness, there can be no evil in the world. But there is evil in the world, therefore God does not exist. Then he gives the second position. You do not need God. Nature explains everything. After he has given the objection, the other man's point of view, then he gives his own position and answers the objection. And that is the case throughout his entire work. You cannot pick up, for example, a volume of Karl Marx and find any honest presentation for the case of private property or for Christianity or for the existence of God. You cannot pick up Lenin and find a presentation of another position than that of communism. But here positions are presented so strongly and honestly and in the words of their own protagonist, let me tell you a story about Voltaire. You remember Voltaire was that scoffer who boasted that it took twelve men to found the infamy of Christianity, but he said, I will destroy it alone. Voltaire went to a convent, rather a monastery, a Benedictine monastery. He lived there about six months. And the news went around France. Voltaire is getting the gift of faith. Oh, no, he was not. You know what he was doing during those six months? He was copying out all the objections that there are in these books. And he never read the answers. That's Voltaire. That's why I like the tradition in which I've been educated. We've always been told the other man's point of view and we're told to think it out. Now, for example, the question of Freud. Here's an article in which St. Thomas asks whether the happiness of man consists in sex. There it is. He gives five reasons why it does, and they're much better than Freud gives. (laughs) And he answers them, too. And then not only does he use his reason, not only does he give both sides, but he also maintains that you must argue from the other man's point of view and never from your own. In other words, when you're arguing with an atheist, you must never say, well, you're a dirty atheist, you do not believe in God. When you're arguing with a communist, does no good to say you're a materialist. Thomas Aquinas says always understand his point of view and start with it. Here is a beautiful example of how he did it. One of his friends, Raymond of Pinafort, had been a missionary among the the Muslims. And he was unable able to do very much with the Muslims. So Raymond of Pinafort came back and said to Thomas, will you write me a book So Thomas wrote contra Gentiles, and this is what he says. He said, When you're arguing with the Muslims, do not quote the Bible. They have their own Bible, which is the Quran. When you're arguing with a Jew, it's all right to use the Old Testament. Arguing Christianity, use the New Testament. But when you argue with Muslims, do not first bring them the Bible. First bring them reason. Think! This is common to both the Muslim and the Christian. This was his approach. And if we could only sell the country on the necessity of honest thinking, that is why we started this program, incidentally, to give the American people reasons for a position, not just to state a position. You know, the trouble with our world today is there's entirely too much authoritarianism in it. First of all, there's the authoritarianism of the totalitarian systems which impose an idea by force. And then there's this other authoritarianism of democratic countries in which people believe something without having any reasons given. And they even do not want reasons. And there are the skeptics who say, oh no, I cannot think, I do not know whether there is a God or not. Let's make them think. This reason that has been given to us is a reflection of the divine word. And it was not meant to rust in us unused. It is the noblest faculty that we possess. And these skeptics have a very false humidity. And they tell us they cannot know and they cannot think out these problems. Why, if their position became universal, the world would die of skeptic poison. So we appeal. To abandon prejudice, to summon up reason, which is a common bond of all men under God. We have not used it sufficiently. There's been a softening of our brains. And here we appeal for a hardening of brains, the development of this great tradition called thinkage. And perhaps if we have a hardening of brains, then we will have something that is good. We will have a softening of the heart, and God will bless us for it.
0: Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free, at one 357 4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com you will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, one 866 357 4336 and on the web www.bishopsheen.com and on behalf of bishop sheen god love you you are listening to radio maria canada we now continue with the program your life is worth living hosted by al smith Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life Is Worth Living, heard here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. And uh, I really enjoyed a few of the insights that Bishop Sheen gave in that reflection. Um, you know, when he talked about talking to Muslims, and uh, I think we all have a number of Muslim friends that we would love to uh, convert. And, (laughs) you know, God is in the business of conversion, but uh, we'd love to be the instrument uh, that God uses to uh, bring about conversions. And his advice to us that, you know, when you are talking to Muslims, that the best way to bring them to our position is to uh, be familiar with some of the passages in the Quran that would help point to uh, the, um, I want to say the beauty of the Catholic faith. And um, it's it's these hard lessons that I think we all wish we could take a course on how to convert my Jewish friend, my Muslim friend, my Hindu friend, my Buddhist friend. and um, But you know what? Sometimes just being a good friend... And, uh, being that example of Christ is what, uh, converts souls. So, uh, let us pray for that grace. But, uh, again, he helps us to think and reason. And, uh, you know, my mother, we'd always just uh, say, you know, does that make sense? You know, let's, let's think about that. And, Uh, Logic is good, and uh, reason is good, Uh, but you hopefully you see what I'm saying here. Anyway, all right, uh, we have to continue our catechism lesson, so let's uh, have Bishop Sheen teach us now about the topic of death and judgment, and uh, so I present to you the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen.
1: Peace be to you. Eventually, we had to come to the subject of death and judgment. But let us not plunge in immediately. If there's anything that characterizes life, it is an intolerance of boundaries. We all want the infinite. That is why we are disappointed very often. We realize the tremendous disproportion that there is between an ideal that we have conceived and reality itself. But still we go on searching simply because we have an indefinite capacity for more. You cannot imagine yourself in the possession of any good thing of not wanting more. Nature sets limits, however, to the more of our bodies boy's eyes are bigger than his stomach. There's a limit to bodily pleasures. They may even reach a point where they become pain. And we become sickened of their own too much. But there are no limits to the desires of the soul. They never reach a point of satiety. There is no limit to a truth that you can know, to the life that you can live. To the love that you can enjoy and to the beauty you can experience. If this were all, I mean what we have in this world, how we would be cheated. We would be frustrated just like a woman mad about fashions who might be put into a room where there were a thousand hats but not a single mirror. Since you have a body and a soul, you can make one or the other master. You can make the body serve the soul, which is the Christian way, or you can make the soul serve the body, which is the miserable way. It is this choice which makes life so very serious. There would be no fun in playing games unless there was a chance to lose. There would be no zest in battle if crowns of merit rest suspended over those who did not fight. There would be no interest in dramas if the characters were puppets. And there would be no point in life unless there were great and eternal destinies at stake in which we say aye or nay to our eternal salvation. Our blessed Lord put it this way. And fear ye not them that kill the body and are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him that can destroy both soul and body in hell. On another occasion our Lord said, What doth it profit a man if he gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his own soul? Or what exchange shall a man give for his soul? There will come a time when this trial will be over. I know it is very difficult to convince modern minds about it. They do not like to hear that life will end. That is why death is so often disguised today by morticians. They would almost make you believe there was happiness in every box. They do not wish to face the fact of man's end. And have you noticed how much the modern mind feels awkward in the face of death? He does not know how to extend sympathy. He does not scruple at reading detective stories in which there are a dozen deaths or murders. But that's because he concentrates on the circumstances preceding the death rather than on the eternal issues involved in death, namely heaven or hell. He never asks, Saved or lost but rather who kill cock robin there are those who think that death belongs to the purely natural or biological order and therefore that man dies just like pigs and roosters die and for exactly the same reason but this is not true man has a soul which is spiritual and immortal and the death of a man is not the same as the death of a beetle. An animal life is like a circle unfolding from within and turning back upon itself. Man's life is like a trajectory that reaches out beyond time to someone who comes to meet it. The real reason for death, therefore, is not in the natural order, but in the historical order, in the sense that at the beginning of human history, man sinned, and the penalty of sin is death. This is the way the scripture puts it. It was through one man that guilt came into the world and since death came owing to guilt death was handed on to all mankind by one man. It is therefore because of original sin that we die. If there were no sin there would be no death. That is the reason why the assumption of our Blessed Mother follows her Immaculate Conception. The Blessed Mother's body did not become subject to corruption because she was preserved free from sin. Our Blessed Lord in giving us the Eucharist implied the resurrection of the body thanks to the fact that we were united to his body and blood. As he put it, The man who eats my flesh and drinks my blood enjoys eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The resurrection of our Lord, therefore, is the pledge of our own resurrection. St. Paul tells us in rather a harsh and yet not stoical manner that we have to die daily. Happy death is a masterpiece and no masterpiece was ever perfected in a day. Du Bois spent seven years in making the wax model for his celebrated statue Joan of Arc. One day the model was finished and the bronze was poured into it. The statue stands today as a ravishing perfection of the sculptor's art. In like manner, our death at the end of our natural existence must appear as a ravishing perfection of the many years of labor we have given to it, given to its mold, by dying daily. That is to say, by mortification. The principal reason why we fear death is because we have never prepared for it. Most of us die only once, when we should have died a thousand times, I when we should have died daily. Death is a terrible thing for him who dies only when he dies. But it is a beautiful thing for him who dies before he dies. namely by dying daily to the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil. There is a very interesting inscription over the tomb of Dun Scotus in Cologne which reads, Samul Sepultus bis mortuus." a double death preceded his burial. There is not one traveler in a hundred who understands the mystery of love behind it. Now, once death comes, there's no remedy for an evil life. But before it comes, there is a remedy. Namely, by dying to ourselves, in which we follow the law of immolation, which is the law of the universe. There's no other way of entering into a higher life except by dying to the lower. There's no possibility of a man enjoying and ennobled existence in Christ unless he's torn up from the old Adam. To him who leads a mortified life in Christ, a death then never comes like a thief in the night, taking one by surprise. We die daily, and thus we rehearse. But whether we rehearse or not, there is no escaping the truth. It is appointed unto men once to die. And after this, the judgment. Those are the words of sacred scripture. As relatives and friends gather around a dead person, They often ask, How much did he leave? But the angels will ask, How much did he take with him? The only thing that we can take with us in death is what we can take with us in a shipwreck, namely, our merits. Then there comes the judgment. Judgment is twofold. We will be judged at the moment of death, which is the particular judgment, and we will be judged on the last day, which is the general judgment. The first judgment is because you are a person, and therefore you are individually responsible for your acts. Your works follow you. But the second judgment will be because you worked out your salvation in the context of the social order and the mystical body of Christ. Therefore, you must be judged with all men. Now, a word about this general judgment when we take upon ourselves our bodies. This general judgment will be accompanied, as we said, by the resurrection of the body At death, when the soul is separated from the body, it still retains its aptitude for the body. The soul has made an imprint on it, very much as if you left your hand on warm wax. One might almost say that at death the soul desires to have the body with it. Now this is because when the soul leaves the body at death, It does not leave the body forever. soul does not become an angel. It remains a human soul. It contains all of its experiences, all of its happenings, all of its thoughts, and all of its deeds. And at the resurrection of the dead, the soul will have a body corresponding to the spiritual condition of the soul. In other words, it will be glorious if the soul is saved and miserable if the soul is lost. Our salvation, therefore, is not just the salvation of the soul, but of our entire personality. Because our bodies have shared in the condition of our soul, they will also share in the glory or the shame of the soul. If you pour water into a blue glass, it looks blue. Or it into a red glass, it looks red. In like manner on the day of resurrections, our bodies will shine forth according to the virtues that are in the soul, or according to the foulness of vices that are in our soul. We've already spoken at other times of the particular, the general judgment. Hear another word about the particular judgment. What will it be like? It will be an evaluation of ourselves just as we really are. As we live this life, there almost seem to be several persons in us. First of all is the persons others think we are. Then there's the person we think we are. And then there is the person we really are. During this life, it is very easy for us to believe our press notices, our publicity, to take ourselves very seriously, to judge ourselves by public opinion rather than by eternal truth. And hence we may and do think ourselves good because we find neighbors who are so wicked. We sometimes judge our virtues by the vices from which we abstain. If we made our money under a capitalistic system, we think labor organizations are wicked. And if we made our money organizing labor unions, we think capitalism is wicked. If we come from the city, we look down on people from the country. We think because a person speaks with an accent, he is unimportant. That if he is black or brown or yellow, he is of less value. Our very enthusiasm for the common man may be because we hate the rich, not because we love the common man. We're not, therefore, always seeing things straight. We are wearing smoke glasses. St. Paul implied that when he said we see now through a glass in a dark manner, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. When that split second of judgment What are we really? We are what we are, not by our emotions, our feelings, our likes and dislikes, but by our choices, our decisions. To change the figure, we are all on the roadway of life in this world, but we travel in different vehicles some in trucks, some in jeeps, some in ambulances, others in 12-cylinder cars, others in broken-down old wrecks, and others in trucks. But each of us is doing the driving. Now, the judgment is something like being stopped by a motor cop. So when we are stopped by God, he does not say to us, As the policeman does not say, what kind of a car are you driving? God is no respecter of persons, he asks, how well did you drive? Did you obey the laws? At death we leave our vehicles behind. Our emotions, prejudices, feelings, our state in life, our opportunities the accidents of talent, duty, intelligence, and position. Hence it will make no difference to God if we were crippled, ignorant, or hated by the world. Our judgment will be based not on our social position, but on the way we lived, on the choices we made, on the things we loved. Think not, therefore, that when you go before the judgment seat of God that you will argue a case. You will plead no extenuating circumstances. You will not ask for a new trial. Nor a new jury. You will be your own judge. You will be your own jury. As scripture says, we will be condemned out of our own mouths. God will merely seal our judgment. What then is judgment, first of all, from God's point of view, and then from our point of view? First from God's point of view, Judgment is recognition. Two souls appear before the sight of God in that split second after death. One is in the state of grace. The other is not. Remember, grace is a participation of divine nature. Remember that just as by nature you resemble your parents, so by grace... We partake of the nature of God. Now the judge, our blessed Lord, looks into the soul and the state of grace. He sees there the resemblance of his nature. And just as a mother knows her child, because that child shares her nature, so too God knows his own children by resemblance of nature. If we are born of him, he knows it. And seeing in that soul the divine likeness, the sovereign judge says to us, Come, ye blessed of my Father. I have taught you to pray our Father. I am the natural son. You the adopted son come into the kingdom I have prepared for you from all eternity. Now let us look at the other soul. It does not possess the family traits of the Trinity. And as a mother knows that her neighbor's son is not her own because there is no sharing in her nature. So to our Lord, seeing in the sinful soul no likeness of his own can only say those words, terrible words, which signify non-recognition. I know you not. And it is a terrible thing not to be known by God. such as judgment from the divine point of view. Now let us take it up from the human point of view, from our own point of view. Here too it is a recognition, but a recognition of unfitness or fitness. Just suppose that a very distinguished visitor is announced one day at your door you are in working clothes and your hands and face are dirty, you are in no condition whatever to present yourself before such an august person. And you refuse, therefore, to see him until you can improve your appearance. A soul that is stained with sin acts very much the same way when it goes before the judgment seat of God. It sees on the one hand or gets some vague glimpse at least of his majesty, his purity, his brilliance, and on the other. Its soul's baseness, its sinfulness, its unworthiness, it does not entreat nor argue nor plead a case. It sees, and from out of the depths it says, O oh Lord, I am not worthy. The soul that is stained with venial sins says, Give me time to clean up, and goes into purgatory to wash its baptismal robes. But the soul that is remediably stained, dead to divine life, casts itself into hell just as naturally as a stone which is released from my hand falls to the ground. And the soul that is Full of divine love and without any temporal punishment due to its sins is like a bird released from its cage. It flies to its medium, which is heaven. Therefore, three possible destinies await you at death and judgment. Hell, which is pain without love. Purgatory, pain with love. Heaven, love without love pain.
0: God love you. Hello, Radio Maria family. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen was a master communicator with an unforgettable voice and ability to communicate the message of Christianity to all peoples. He was a Catholic priest with a tremendous knowledge of Catholic theology. We've been blessed to share his recordings through the generosity of our good friends at FultonSheen.com. I would ask you to visit their website to download hundreds of MP3 talks by the great Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Please visit them at www.FultonSheen.com and there you can enjoy the voice of the master preacher of Christ who touched the lives of millions worldwide with his warmth, wisdom, and humor. So please visit FultonSheen.com to start enjoying your own collection of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen recordings. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear Radio Maria family, our hour has come to an end, and I hope you enjoyed the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, That uh, lesson on death and judgment is quite sobering, and, uh, you know, it's those four last things of uh, death, judgment, heaven, or hell. And um, something to ponder, of course, this week, and uh, uh, it can be a little bit scary, but uh, we trust in the Lord. We trust in the Lord. So let us just uh, throw ourselves onto his mercy, uh, say our prayers, read our scriptures, and continue to try to amend our lives as the best we can with the grace of God's help. So please remember to pray for us here at Radio Maria Canada, and of course we will do the same for you. And so until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly. And bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.